Hey everybody, happy Thanksgiving. There is no new episode this week, and so I am re-releasing one of my favorite episodes from the past as a sort of TBT, Throwback Thursday, Throwback Thanksgiving episode. Uh, this was recorded with me and one of my best friends, Len Tai, a couple years ago, and it's one of my favorite examples of a great Andy Hacker story. What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they make decisions both at their businesses and in their personal lives, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that... <laughs> Len's making me laugh here. The goal here is always so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today is a special episode. I'm here with Len Tai, the founder of Key Values. What's up, Len? Hello. Len is... A really good friend of mine. We met in college 12 years ago. We moved to San Francisco together. Yeah. Eight and a half, nine years ago, back in 2010. I think it's safe to say that Len is my best friend. And oh, you're making me cry. I'm also like a mentor, advisor, whatever you want to call it, to your business key values. So I've been there since the very beginning, two years ago. Yeah. When you started Almost the company. To the day. Almost to the day. And I remember very distinctly you saying that your goal was to eventually come onto the Indie Hackers podcast, which I had just started two years ago as well. I know, and you were like, uh, well, you got to make some money first. Yeah, yeah, you got to make some money. And now you have. Yeah. No, Why it's... don't you tell listeners how much money you're making with Key Values? Yeah, so last quarter, Q4, I did about 80K in sales. And this quarter, I'm on track to do the same or even better. Last Damn. week, yeah, last week I did 25K in sales. Did I tell you that? It's, it was like a really, really. You've been telling me all week. <laughs> <laughs> True. It's just been like a really awesome, Only energizing week. Really yeah. energizing week. So you're on track. You're at sort of like $300,000, $350,000 a year run rate with your revenue. What do your expenses look like? How much money do you spend to keep this business running? Not much. I mean, I don't have employees. I don't have an office. I work out of here from home or squat out of Oliver's office. My husband's, I pay for subscriptions, hosting, I mean, like a, like yeah. a few hundred dollars a month you yeah. spend. It's yeah. almost all profit with your business. You're a solo founder. You don't have employees. You don't have an office. You're a first-time founder. This mm -hmm. is the very first company you've ever started in two years. You're already at the point where you're making way more than you made as a developer. For How sure. How does it feel? It's, I mean, it's surreal, but it's also the new normal. Um, but no, I'm really proud. And it's. I, I remember two years ago, you were like, if you just do anything, you show up every single day. It'll happen. I was like, promise? You promise. And you're like, I mean, I don't promise. <laughs> <laughs> no guarantees. I know you're like, I'm not writing this down. But yeah, I mean, if you just show up for two years, it'll happen. And I mean, you weren't wrong. And it's been two years. I think one of the cool things about your story is that you are not what I would describe as a business guru. You're not devouring startup essays and books. You're not... Yeah, uh, reading on the philosophies Although of sales. I feel sales. like you're calling me out right now. <laughs> it's true, though. It's like, this yeah, is I'm how not. you identify. No, I'm, I'm definitely not. I'm not. Um, and yet, the, your first time out of the gate starting a business, you've achieved more success than I ever had, than most people I've talked to. And I think there are a lot of special, unique things about key values that make it just a really good business and that sort of contributed to your outside success. So I really want to get into those details. But before we do, why don't you tell people what Key Values is, oh, yeah. how it works, uh, who uses it, and why? Yeah, so Key Values is a website that helps software engineers find jobs based on their values. So if you're an engineer and you want work-life balance, you want to contribute to open source, and I don't know, maybe you hate going to meetings, you would go to Key Values, select those as tags and filters, and you'd find teams that share those values. Um, and yeah, and then you get to learn about companies before committing 
to the long and exhausting interview process. And how does your business model work? How do you make money with key values? Yeah, so it's not a recruiting platform. There's no placement fees or contingency model. It's a subscription model. So companies companies pay me. I never charge. Engineers never would. Um, companies pay me a flat fee for the year and to generate the content and list their their page on key values. Okay, so it's super straightforward. Let's get into the story of how you started it. We're going to go way back into our history. <laughs> do you remember when we first moved to SF? Or do you remember even before that in college where I was always obsessed with startups? I was obsessed yeah. with coding. You were on a totally different spectrum. You were, I think, neuroscience. Yeah, I was brain and cognitive sciences. I was, goodness, that, it's so weird to think back. It's like everyone thought you were the weird one. And now living in San Francisco, it's like the no, everyone's in this space. But yeah, you were. The, I remember you would always be coding <laughs> at parties and whatnot, people would literally be like chugging beers behind you and you'd be like, drink a beer and then go to your computer and code. Um, but no, in college, I was brain and cog. I always wanted to be a professor. My mom, my dad, my sister, they're all academic professors. So even before I got into college, I like knew for certain that that was what my calling. Um, and so in college, I was laser focused on doing research and making sure I got good grades and everything that set me up for success for that path. But yeah, and then when we moved to San Francisco, I was doing that. I went to UCSF to get my PhD in neuroscience. You were still coding. You've been so consistent. <laughs> I've had so many life changes. Um, and you've, I mean, you too, but more or less, it's linear. But yeah, and then when we first moved, I remember you were like, I don't know if you were in, you were in YC. I hadn't gotten into YC. We moved to San Francisco and I didn't have a job. My plan was I'm going to somehow get into Y Combinator. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did while we were living I remember together. living together and you would like go to Mountain View and I was like, what the hell is in Mountain View? And like you went to this thing that was two letters. I literally didn't even remember that it was called YC. I was like ZW, whatever. I don't know. I was just like <laughs> totally not in that world. Um, and I was just like cleaning up mouse poop, doing surgeries, wearing like booties, <laughs> doing I, do you remember, lab um, work. The summer before or two summers before we actually moved to SF, you had an internship and you brought me to your lab where you're working with your sister and you're showing me, what? yeah, you're showing me all oh, of the in, surgeries. In Emeryville. Yeah, in Emeryville. You're showing me, because I had no idea what you did. And did you we were show like, you the literally, animals? yeah, you're literally like doing brain surgery on Yeah, rats. and like little, um, yeah. To- I do not remember nuts. that. That's so crazy. Nuts. Yeah, so, yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. Sorry, I'm wiping my nose. Um, yeah, but two years in, I was just like not into it anymore, which was, I think you had already moved out at that point, but we were definitely still good friends. But yeah, the path of being a professor was like my identity for so, so long. And then, yeah, I, I just realized, I don't know, I was like crying a lot. I was so unhappy. I wasn't sure if I like missed Boston, if I missed my friends, if I didn't like my project, maybe I didn't like my, I don't know, so, some source of misery somewhere. And it took me a while to figure out what it was. But ultimately, it was just that I wasn't doing something that I loved. Yeah. I mean, you cried a lot when we lived together. I don't know what it was. It was a whole bunch of random stuff. But I do remember always thinking you as someone thinking of you as somebody who followed in your sister's footsteps because your sister was like totally a, what six years older than seven you? seven years older yeah I have one older sister you I mean you know Kay really well yeah. but Kay and I are super close and she's always been like this mentor role model for me and we've she's a professor at MIT in neuroscience but yeah like I we wanted to do it together me, my sister and I would be like we're gonna start an institute together someday which was actually not I mean definitely ambitious but that was like that was our North Star. So yeah. it was a really big deal when I decided to not continue down that path. And it was like, I mean, yeah. it was really hard on my family. It was really hard on me. And it was definitely by far the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And I talk about it a lot, though, because it's like also a huge part of my identity. It like just 
taught, I mean, honestly, in a lot of ways, it's still behind the ethos of key values where it's just like life is just way too short to do something you don't love. And if you're miserable every single day doing your work, get the fuck out, like quit, do something else. And I think it's scary when you're, you know, older in your twenties and your thirties and beyond to like change careers, but just do it. Like, I just, I think that that's kind of where that came from. Yeah. You say that, but it was pretty hard for you to quit. Oh my God. I cried so, so much. Yeah. I cry, yeah, also, I cry a lot. A lot. Of that. I cry a lot in general. <laughs> it was a big decision because that was your whole life up until that and point. And it was really hard. But yeah. And then I guess at some point I just, I knew though, it, like it was actually, it, people always talk about like eureka moments, like aha, light bulb switches. And I've never experienced that. I thought that was just like a nice thing. But I remember sitting in this talk, a postdoc was giving about the research progress. And I was eating this bagel. It was like 8.30 a.m. The bagel was stale. It was so tired and it was so boring. And I just like literally had this aha moment when I was like, I don't have to do this. Like I don't, like no one's making me do this. This isn't a life that I have to live so I can choose. And I choose that I'm out. You and chose I, to, to drive sidecar. That's no, what, that's no, what you no, chose. no, no, that's not. Okay. Whoa, whoa. Okay. So it's true. After I dropped out of grad school, I had no plan, which was like, obviously really scary. Everyone's like, if you don't know what you're going to like, have something lined up. But I just knew that I wouldn't be able to figure out what I wanted to do if I was doing something that was draining me every day. Stop laughing. I did not quit grad school to become a taxi driver. But after I dropped out, you know, I didn't have a plan. I didn't barely had any money saved. I was living, you know, I was making uh, when you're in grad school at that time, it was like a $30,000 stipend. So I was really poor. Um, so I had to make money. And yeah, sidecar was this thing that was the competitor to Lyft. Uber X didn't even exist yet. And yeah, I, someone like was like, hey, you should you have a car. You should drive for sidecar. And I was like, cool, I need money. So yeah, I was a, basically a cab You're driver. pretty good at it. People like you. I mean, you're <laughs> probably the most extroverted person I know. And so you're driving this car around SF. It was People so are fun. giving you tips for yeah. being a good driver, yeah, I guess. Yeah, Sidecar was donation-based and people were super generous at the time because it was like a novel idea. And yeah, for sure, everyone's response was like, okay, one, you're a woman. Two, you're young. Three, you speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was always like, your English is so good. Whoa, you're young. Wait, you're a woman. Um, so it was always like, it was just really jarring at the time. I think it's not so, it's not weird or abnormal now, but back then it definitely You weren't was. like the other drivers at all. Yeah, for sure. Everyone's like, whoa, you're an American. That's weird. Why are you doing this? But yeah, it was a great, honestly, it was a really fun job. I met so many different people. I really got to know my city. But yeah, it was a fun job. I did that for a while and that definitely like funded my life until I got a real job. But yeah. I mean, you did a ton of stuff back then. I remember I was super focused on the startup that I'd gotten into YC with and I was working all the time. And I felt like every time I turned around, you just met some new person who had gotten you into some totally new job. Oh, yeah. You're driving sidecar. Yeah. During sidecar, I also had this like few months stint where I was producing EDM concerts and it was so random. I met these two DJs from Burning Man and they like, I'd fly out to Boston and Rhode Island and we like produced these concerts, like massive concerts for like Steve Aoki and Big Sean. That was also really, really fun, but I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do forever either. And so what did I do? You quit. I, just, I quit again. It's a common theme. And then I went and backpacked in Southeast Asia, like the classic soul searching journey. Yeah, I did that for months. And it was actually really like that was hard too because I was around Christmas time and I just dropped out of grad school still. My parents, it was, it was uncomfortable. Like my family was not, they wanted to be supportive, but it was just so hard for them to be. Um, and then I came back to San Francisco and started working at Homejoy which is an on-demand cleaning company, which is really cool and well-funded. But at the time, my parents were like, holy shit, our daughter dropped out of a PhD program in neuroscience. 
to work at a cleaning company. We have failed. We <laughs> to have work truly, at some random cleaning truly, company. I think they thought I was clean. I don't know. I don't oh, know what they thought, hilarious. but they just were like really, really worried and kicked off like a panic. And then I think Homejoy got like ran up in Forbes at one point and my parents were like, oh wait, what is this? Maybe it's okay. But yeah, that was an interesting having to explain that. Tell me about getting the job at Homejoy. How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know if you know this story. So... There were some friends. One of the co-founders of Homejoy went to MIT. It was your class, I think. And there were several other like MIT people. They weren't like close friends of mine, but they reached out. And it was because I went to your Pi reunion. MIT has this reunion 3.14 years after you graduate. So nerdy. In Vegas, I think it's always in Vegas. And I, I crashed the year above, above me. And they remembered me because I was like really bossy this one day. Because... <laughs> That was a long story. There was like everyone was putting their stuff in my friend's cabana and then the people at the at the, the club were like, you can't do this. There's too many people in your cabana. And so I just like stood on a table. It was at the pool and I was like, hey, everyone, you got to get your shit out of here. They're going to throw it away. And yeah, this guy who was, was like, oh, she's bossy. And he like recalled that memory and hit me up to be like, hey, I remember you like bossing people around. You want to be a manager? So that's that's literally how I got that job. I remember being super so excited that you got this job because – at MIT, none of my friends were programmers. When we moved to SF, I didn't have any close friends who knew anything about the startup scene. And meanwhile, you were basically, you know, on this weird journey doing all sorts of stuff. And you ended up at this high growth, like Silicon yeah, Valley startup. Yeah, like one of the and hottest was, companies for sure. I was so excited. I was like, Len, you're finally in the startup world. And it had been completely alien to you before that. What was it like being at Homejoy? Homejoy was an awesome experience. I remember I tried to get you to work there. I was like, it's Constantly. fucking awesome. Join us. And you were like, hell no. But uh, yeah, Homejoy was my first real job. It was, I mean, I was getting paid like, I think I started at 65K. But at the time I had just come from 30K a year. And so it was like more than double. And it was just all the things that I was craving that I wasn't getting from grad school. It was like super fast paced, it was super high energy. Um, it was like really social. I was, I just, it was like, I was traveling a lot when I first started. It was just everything that I needed. And yeah, it was, it was a journey, man. We all worked long hours. I don't know, 80, 90. I feel like there was definitely a couple of weeks where we'd work a hundred hours a week. We slept at the office. We were, and I know looking like saying this, a lot of people are like, that sounds awful, but it was really, really fun for us at the time. I think we were just super passionate. And whenever you're passionate about something, it's always, there's like nothing better than finding other people who are equally passionate and like about the same thing too. So yeah, Homejoy was a really good experience. I was a manager. So that meant it was like my first job. It was like 24, 20, yeah, 24, 25. I was managing 150 plus people. It was like Crazy how much work experience I got crammed into those few months. So Homejoy was basically Uber for home cleaning. You would use a service to book people to come into your house. My memories of you working at Homejoy were basically that it was this rocket ship startup. Yeah. I didn't know very much about it. I know they kept raising more and more money. I remember going to some party you invited me to where it's like they had just raised $40 million. Oh, yeah. And some elaborate party. That's where all the money went. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And then, of course, it ended up folding. But for a long time, Homejoy was a, it was a rocket ship. I, in my 18 months there, we, I saw three offices. Like we had to break leases and keep going to a bigger office because we kept growing. We went from like, I think it was like we were just in San Francisco and maybe Seattle or something when I joined. And then we were in over 30 c cities across North America and Europe when I left. It was, it was pretty wild. Why'd you leave? 
It's a really good question. My heart just wasn't in it at some point. Like I, I loved it until I didn't. Um, I think there was, it wasn't the long hours or anything. It was just the direction. My vision for Homejoy was that it was like more of a matchmaking service, which is, you know, super foreshadowing for key values. I think I just like making good connections, but in order to be the Uber for anything, you really, it's like the idea for, for the direction of the company was that it didn't matter who showed up to your house, you'd get the same quality clean. And in my mind, I was like, that's not possible because letting someone into your private space for four hours unattended when you're not home is like a really big deal, you know? And I don't think that any two, like, there's no way that you can make two people do that same job the same. So yeah, I think when I realized that my direction, the direction of the company wasn't something that I was really passionate and excited about, it was time to go. And yeah, everyone thought I was, I left before things got like started looking bad and everyone thought was, I was so crazy for leaving. In fact, everyone was like, oh, where are you going? Are you going to go start your own company? And it pissed me off actually at the time because I felt like everyone was just projecting their Silicon Valley dreams onto me. And I was like, no, I'm not like, if you want to do that, you should, but stop trying to, I don't know. It was just, it was a weird time. It was weird too, from my perspective, because you were, had been so adamant about trying to recruit me. I mean, you were like Homejoy's biggest champion, the yeah. biggest cheerleader. Yeah. I would go there sometimes and work on my laptop because you were trying to get me to work there. <laughs> yeah. And I never even really considered it, but to see you sort of 180 from everybody should work here, it's so great, to, hey, I'm not really feeling it, and eventually quitting was pretty shocking. Yeah. I mean, I think it just was every, I mean, to be fair, everything in that, when you're working at a high growth startup is accelerated. It wasn't like overnight. It was, you know, probably the last six months were me figuring out that, you know, it wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be or what I thought it once was. And of course you can't, I think this is something I see commonly now actually relevant to key values is that people say, you know, they're like things used to be X, Y, and Z. And that's just the nature of startups. Like you can't, it's impossible for a company to stay the same way from 15 employees to 150 employees. It's just, it's impossible. But yeah, it grew, it, I outgrew Homejoy. Or maybe Homejoy outgrew me, I'm not sure. But it just, we started diverging. So anyway, you quit Homejoy. Homejoy exploded and folded as a company sometime <laughs> after you quit. So it was a yeah. good move. Yeah. What did you do after that? Yeah, so I didn't, as always, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I just knew that I didn't want to keep working at Homejoy. I went to Machu Picchu and hiked in Patagonia, did more backpacking, soul searching. And that's when I decided that I wanted to learn how to code, which I thought you'd be excited about. But you, then when I told you, you were like, nah, man, I don't know. I don't know. I spent years trying to get everybody <laughs> I knew to learn how to code. I taught my brother to code. I helped uh, one of our mutual friends, Christian, yeah. who's now an engineer at Slack, learn how to code. And I never thought you would actually say yes. I know. That's rude. You were always, you'd always been telling, even in college when I was like, no, no way, no chance, like falling on deaf ears. But then, yeah, you've been telling me to learn how to code. Oliver, my boyfriend at the time, now husband was also like, you should learn how to code. I think everyone should know how to code. And so I'd spent like two months really thinking about it. And I was like, all right, guys, like, you're right. I want to learn how to code. We were both shocked. Help me. We and, like, then you, what? and then both of you were like, oh, you know, I don't know if you're going to like it. Like, I don't know. It was so weird. Well, I think... You know, you said it earlier at Homejoy, one of the things you liked about your job was that you talked to so many people, even at Sidecar, you were constantly talking to people yeah. and being a programmer. I was kind of worried that like, you might not know what you were getting into. Like you might be too solitary or it too is boring pretty, for yeah. you. But it doesn't have to be. I think there's, yeah, it's something I think about all the time. Just like, I am really extroverted, but I also do like alone time, especially when I'm working. So it's this weird trade-off. I, I mean, your, your concerns were valid. You're like, you're going to hate coding and sitting still all day looking at a computer, not talking to anyone, but there's, it's still social. So tell us about this process of how you learned how to code, because a lot of people listening in 
are considering this process themselves? Should they learn how to code before they start a business? What did it look like for you? I didn't, so I knew I wanted to learn how to code. I just didn't know how I want to learn. And after much thought, I knew that I wouldn't be able to self-teach. Like, you know, Christian, for the most part, our friend, he just bought, he like literally just bought a bunch of textbooks, like fat textbooks, read them and just learned himself. And that's just not my learning style. And so I knew that I wanted to do something like dev, a, a boot camp. So I did something called dev boot camp, and I wanted to be in person. I wanted to, you know, like have experts who knew all the answers to my questions, be able to answer them when I asked them. And I didn't need to not feel guilty asking them a hundred questions every hour. And I wanted to have other people who are learning with me. So yeah, that's, I did a boot camp until I quit that too. Until, until you quit the boot camp <laughs> too. I remember all the complaints that you had about this boot camp, maybe a few weeks in or a month and a half in yeah. where you were, I think moving a lot faster than a lot of the other people who were learning to code because you were sort of full-time all in. This is the only thing well, you were focused on. So was on. everyone else, which to this day I was just like, I think I honestly got unlucky, but like people in my cohort and my particular cohort just did not have urgency, but it was like, it was expensive. It was like $14,000 or something. And you know, no one's making money during that time. Everyone's learning. And I obviously wasn't making, I didn't have that much saved from grad school and from Homejoy's really generous <laughs> salary. So I, it was just like a huge deal to me and I wanted to make the most of it. And I felt like everyone else was just like super chill and like, just like go home at six. And I was like staying there till 10 PM midnight, trying to learn and make them get you my- were literally teaching other people in your class what you had learned that week. And you would complain <sighs> to me like, you're paying this yeah. boot camp money to teach other people well, to do their job for them. It was, yeah, I know. It's it's like, you know how people always say like the best way to learn is to teach, which is true, except for when you're paying to teach people. And I just felt like at some point I was like, this is bullshit. And once I found out that they would refund me if I left early, I was like, I just bounced. And also in part because after complaining and you were like so annoyed hearing me complain, you're like, well, why don't you just quit? And then like, I'll help you continue learning. And I was like, deal. Yeah. You ended up coming over, I think, every day or at least a few times and, a no, week. Every day. How dare you? I was very committed. I literally would walk from the mission all the way through the tenderloin to your apartment. And I never Ubered or I never took a lift or anything because that cost money and I was saving money. And I would just walk through all like the needles and the bums who were like yelling and mean things to me. And I would sit in your living room and make you answer my questions. But you were really helpful. I'm always, I will forever be grateful forever that you helped me. You were a good student. I remember the contrast between helping you learn how to code and helping my brother. And he was fighting every step of the way. Like I would check well, in on him after a few days. Also, he's your brother. He's like, fuck you, dude. Like, exactly. tell me how to Who live. Teach me? Yeah. yeah. Whereas you're like more, I think this is one thing that characterizes you as a founder in general is you're a very humble person. You're not trying to prove what you already know. You're more just trying to get help from any source that you can. Oh my God. I don't know how people do that. If you don't know, why why do you pretend that you know? I'm like, I don't know anything. Help me, someone. I'm lost. That's like more yep. me. That was a perfect impression of yourself, Len. <laughs> how long did it take you to learn how to code and get your first contract gig after you started coming over to my place? I probably quit in April. I remember I quit Dev Bootcamp around my birthday. And I was like crying a lot on my birthday. And then I guess my, the first gig was like a shared gig ish. And then the first real gig I got on my own was like in July maybe. But to be honest, I don't know if I would say like I knew how to code. I don't know. This is a constant debate. Like when, at what point does someone know how to code? Right? Like, well, eventually there came expert, a point where but, you were getting contracts without my help. Cause the first contract I was like, let's get a contract together and we'll sort of work on it together. And I think 
that was a cool learning experience for you. At some point, I think maybe it was January of the next year, maybe even earlier than that. No, it was earlier. It was at the end of the year. I remember at least like alt school, I got that gig in around Thanksgiving in November of that year. So, and I definitely had some other smaller gigs before that, like Rosalie T and like Learnivore, which I got over a tweet. Like that was, that was an awesome, that, yeah, that happened really easily, but I was getting gigs on my own probably in the summer. How does somebody go from not knowing how to code to sort of kind of knowing how to code and suddenly getting all of these contract work from home jobs? So this is a question people ask me often, and I wish I had a better answer because I don't know if it was partially luck or timing or if it was like my, luckily I had this network, but for me to get my gigs in the beginning was kind of random. But the thing I definitely did was tell every single person that I knew that I was open and available for contract work as a web developer. And the other thing I did that was really careful to do, because I, you know, like three months before that, I was non-technical. I didn't even know like what languages meant. Like I didn't know anything. I made sure to let everyone I knew who didn't code know that it was like, I'm available to make websites. I'm available to write in these languages. Like I made it really clear and easy for people to remember because otherwise people, you know, they just don't know what kind of engineer you are. And then they like put you in touch with their company and it's like not a good fit. It's obvious. But yeah, I was really lucky. I think most of my gigs came in from people that I already knew. It was pretty inspiring watching you do this because I had done a lot of contract web development work. And I guess I always just felt like I got kind of lucky getting jobs. Like I would make something cool just for fun and then get inbound requests, but I didn't really have a network or tap into it. And then you came on the scene and less than a year after learning how to code, you were making, I think you were charging like a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah. All these clients. I went from like 30. I remember the first time I was like, I, cause, cause in the beginning you're, and this is the advice everyone will give you is like, start building side projects. So you have a portfolio so that when someone reaches out or you reach out, they have something to look at. And so I think for me, it was like, why don't I just get paid to build a port, like, build my portfolio. Like, why don't I get paid to learn? There are people who just need some base, like, you know, the Shopify example, like she had a very simple site. She just wanted some help figuring out how to like make a new landing page or something like I should do, do that and get paid. So I was like, pay me $30 an hour. It's cause I would have done it for free. And it was like a weird thing. Um, and it's really analogous to charging, doing sales for a company actually, just like knowing how much your rate is, how much you're worth. Um, and then eventually, yeah, the story of how I started charging hundred dollars an hour is embarrassing. So I don't want to. <laughs> well, now you have to tell it. Do you not remember? No, not at all. I, I did the call at your apartment. You don't I remember? Don't, I don't have any memory. Uh, okay, so this is embarrassing, and I don't know if I'm, I maybe want you to cut this out because it's just like, God, it's so terrible. But basically, I was talking to a recruiter for a company, and I was like, yeah, I want to say like $80 an hour, but my last client was $100 an hour, which was kind of true, but it was really short. And then he like paused which probably wasn't even longer than half a second, but I'm just so crazy. I was like, but I'll do it for 65. And then he was like, um, why don't I just pretend the last 30 seconds didn't happen? And I heard you say hundred sometimes. So why don't I go in and say that you're charging a hundred dollars an hour? Is that okay with you? And I was like, yes, thank you. Sorry. I, I guess he must've gotten paid a percentage. I don't remember this at all. It was just so embarrassing because I like immediately backpedaled and I was like, I'll just do it for free. No, I mean, I mean, it didn't go that far, but basically, and he helped, he basically negotiated for me. I didn't need to go. He was on my side. Like, I'm sure he got paid more if I charged more. So that's how I. But then after <laughs> that, it was $100 charging. an hour for $100 everyone. an hour. And then, yeah, of course, once I started doing it, I was like, no, I am totally, this is, that is my worth. I, if anything, I should have raised my rate. But that's amazing. The power of really just code. I mean, you went from poor grad student making 30K to operations manager for Homejoy making like 60K, learned how to code, and in under a year, 
you're charging $100 an hour to work from home on whatever projects you thought were interesting. It's so funny hearing you say it now because it's like, wow, that sounds magical. But it was a lot of hard work. It did not feel fast at the time at all. I remember it was just like, I was getting antsy. I was like, when am I going to start making money? When am I going to start making money? I'm starting to run out of money. I need to get a job. Like, how do you know you're ready? Who do you, what kind of gig should I get? Like, and I remember in the beginning, you were talking me through this. I was like, okay, I need to build up my portfolio, but I don't have much more time to keep building and learning on my own without getting paid. So if someone offers to pay me to kind of like simultaneously build my portfolio, because when you work with a client, that's building your, you know, that's building your portfolio. Like how low can I go? Cause if I'm going to do it anyway, like why not do it for $30 an hour? And you're like, no, Lynn, do not. It's way like, you're like, no, no, no. So I think it's hard to know, but just say a number and take a stab at it. And people can always say, can always negotiate down. Don't do what I did, which is backpedal immediately. One of the coolest things about how you found jobs and it really differed from the way that I found jobs as a programmer because I did a lot of contract work back then. And what I would do is work on some cool open source project that I thought was fun and just put it out into the world. And mm, then people right. would reach out to me and be like, hey, can this you build cool. this? This is cool. Can we use it? Yeah, or, can yeah, you build this something. for our company? And I found like a lot of jobs that way. But you were more of a networker. You just learned well, how to yeah, code. Yeah, think about it. You had you flexed your advantage. I did not have 10, 15. You were like coding when you were an infant. Like seriously, you you were coding since you were like what? Like, yeah, 14, maybe. 14? That's fucking crazy. And so I didn't have that. So I can't lean on that. So my strength at that time was my network. So I leaned on that. I mean, but even watching you network, it wasn't like you were going to networking events. It was literally you just talked to everybody you knew. And I distinctly remember this because I was like, oh, that's super smart. And Stephanie Horbert, who's been on this podcast, did the same thing where to get contract work, she just literally told everybody that she knew, hey, I'm a programmer or whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm open for work. And you told everybody that and people would just keep that in mind. And when they had interactions, they would think of you and sort of forward. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, it sounds like it's not a very clear guaranteed way to get stuff, but it's, I mean, it's why not? It's definitely like not stupid to make sure everyone knows what you're doing now um, and to help generate leads. So it just sticks out to me because I gave this talk at a conference last summer. I think it was called how to get lucky. And one of the big points that I made was just tell everybody what you need help with. Tell everybody what you're doing. Broadcast that shit. Yeah. And it just gives people the chance to help you out. And I think a lot of people struggle with like, what is networking? What, how do I leverage people? You know what's funny? People? I feel like there's so many people who want to start businesses around this where it's like, you need help. And someone within like a 10 block radius has your answers. But like, how do you know? Anyways, but it's true. I think if since, since no one's cracked the code yet and there's no product that exists that solves this problem, hit up all your friends. Like it's a good excuse to catch up with people you haven't talked to in a long time. I definitely hit up everyone who used to work at Homejoy and was like, Hey, what are you guys up to now? If you're not there, like want to help me find a job. And yeah, they did. Like, I think the first four gigs I got were all through friends. Fast forward, I don't know, I guess a year after that, I had started ND Hackers. Yeah. You were still doing lots of contract work, yeah. charging 100 bucks an hour, maybe more at some point. Nah. And I remember going to your boyfriend Oliver's office where you would work in sort of a back room yeah. and I would come and work on ND we Hackers. We co-worked like every day together for months, I yeah. felt like. I would come and I was super jazzed because ND Hackers was brand new. I was getting on the front page of Hacker News once yeah. or twice a month. Yeah, up. I remember. We'd be like, whoa, look how many people are on your site right now. Yeah, and then I was super excited about you because like you're making so much money with- uh, <sighs> Yeah, that was an exciting time. Yeah, you're working on these interesting projects. You're making more money than you ever have your entire life. Why leave that all behind to decide to start your own company? Oh, God, this is like memory lane. So I actually remember a lot of this. So I remember in December and January, like the cold, rainy months of San, in San Francisco in 2000, what is this? It must have been 16 going to 17. I was 
so into making money because this is honestly, I mean, you just heard my whole backstory. I did not get paid very much at Homejoy. It was like the first time in my life that I was making real money. And I had ne- I didn't obviously save any money from my grad school days. So I was like addicted to just watching that dollar amount grow my bank account for the first time. And I was working, I had two full-time clients. I was like working around the clock, worked through Christmas and New Year's. And I was, I felt like I was really killing it. And then it must've been March. Yeah. I worked through and through February. March was like this crazy storm. It was like a perfect storm of events. So the weather was getting nicer, which is, I know this sounds crazy, but for me, weather really impacts my mood. My mom had just visited and my mom lives in Hong Kong. So I don't see her very often. She was 70 and was supposed to retire, but she was actually traveling to San Francisco because she was like doing some talks or something. Cause she actually just made this huge discovery in science. Like, I don't know the, de- I don't know if people care about the details, but she basically made this huge discovery and a breakthrough in science and was like peaking in her career. And that was just like so inspiring. Cause my mom's like 70 killing it. Right. And then also at the same time, you Cortland were entertaining this idea of getting acquired. And I was like, what? You just started Indie Hackers like eight or nine months ago. What's going on? And all that happened. And I felt like really inspired. There's all these exciting things happening around me. And then I had no outlet because like my project ended and my other main client actually had to pause the work that I was supposed to do. I was, I was supposed to do like this huge project that was coming up, but they needed like four or six weeks to get it started and do paperwork with this, this third party that they were using. It's a long story. But basically like everything was happening. I had all this energy. I felt super inspired by you and my mom and I was, my birthday was coming up and it was just like, I just had so much energy and nowhere to put it. And so, yeah, I think I kind of went a little crazy and I was like, what do I do with my life? I had this whole existential crisis of like, what, what do I want? Like, what is the purpose of, what is the meaning of my life? What do I want? And I think everyone, oh yeah. And I think you and my mom both were like, you should just follow your dreams, Lynn. Like do whatever you want. Follow, chase, follow your dreams. That definitely wasn't me. <laughs> yes, it was. You were like, you should do what you want. I don't know. Well, you were probably like, you should start a company because that's. Just... I probably said something very analytical and tried to make a. No, you were like, you should start a side business. You should start a side. You should yeah, start a side project. Like Have a side project. You were doing indie hackers, so you were like, you should start a side business. Yeah. So, anyways, what freaked me out was just like I didn't have like a clear dream. And that was like freaking me out because I was like, oh my God, I'm a shell of a human walking around planet Earth, dreamless. And this is a dreamless state. And I remember I was like seriously manic for a couple of weeks. And then I realized that there was like three things that I think maybe could count as a dream because I had sort of wanted them loosely for at least a decade. And they were one, I always wanted to do an Ironman, totally random. Two, I always wanted to start a family and have kids. And then three, I think I always wanted to like, in some way work with my friends in some capacity and maybe have some type of like the perfect in a perfect world be so cool to have a business that you own. You call like, I mean, I think everyone knows this, but like consulting is kind of like a gateway drug into entrepreneurship because you get a taste of the freedom and like setting your own schedule. I mean, you're like, you get to create your own little world and set your own rules. So I'd, I'd been sipping on that for a couple of years and I was like, yeah, I like that. So yeah, I think I, I like, I guess dream number three was like maybe starting a company with my friends or like, I don't know, something to that nature. So yeah. And then obviously Oliver, my boyfriend was like, number two, starting a family. Let's not, <laughs> don't chase that dream just yet. Um, so I, so yeah, I picked number one and three. All right. So we're not going to talk about the Iron Man as much. This is a show about <laughs> entrepreneurship. Let's talk about dream number three, starting a company, working with your friends and sort of following, like you said, the gateway drug of consulting into entrepreneurship you eventually settled on the idea for key values. How did you get there? If your dream was as vague as I want to do something and maybe work with my friends, how did you 
sort of shape that into the concrete vision that became key values? I think I like tried to think of a bunch of ideas. They're all really shitty. I wasn't excited about any of them. I started some like 24 hours later. I was like, I'm over it. And then you were like, well, maybe you should like find a full-time job. Because I also was pissed that you had abandoned me. You were the only like, so I didn't say this before, but the the deal was if you helped me learn how to code, I had to promise that I would try consulting, like not become a full-time employee. And I was like, deal. So that was, that was how I even started thinking about consulting. And then here, this whole, like for as long as I've ever known you, you're like, being an employee sucks, like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then here you are like entertaining, becoming an employee of Stripe. And I was like, I felt so betrayed. I felt betrayal. It was weird because I'm like, okay, you're leaving me out in the dust. But yeah, so then I was like, I should look for full-time jobs. And so I spent a week or two on a job search and it was just so shitty. And I complained about it so much. And it finally, like always, when you're like, all right, Lynn, you've been complaining about this, like what could you build a business around yeah, it? You have this problem. Like maybe you could build a business to solve this problem. Yeah. And that was, I remember how excited I was like, I don't remember exactly the day, but I remember at the end of the day, like running up to Oliver and being like, I'm so excited about this idea. And he, you know, I, I probably said the exact same thing, like multiple days in a row and then just dropped those. But this one felt like it really stuck. What was the problem you had that you ended up building a business to solve? Well, if you remember, actually, it's so funny, I kind of forgot this detail, but there was part of me like, well, maybe, will you hire me for indie hackers? Like, maybe I should work with you. Or like, I just like, maybe I should help uh, Oliver with his company. He's the startup founder also. Like that in that way, that checks the boxes. So I was also for a couple of weeks, you know, loosely just seeing what, like what other startups there were. And of course I was looking at like what my friends' companies were doing because then I could then work with my friends. And yeah, but the process of looking for jobs was so dreadful. So, so, so dreadful. For me, I've always had a strong affinity for startups, like being scrappy and starting something early. I never was interested in working at the Googles and Facebooks of the world. But yeah, I couldn't find any information about these cool startups. And I felt like that was ridiculous because, you know, I'd worked at Homejoy, which was a YC company. All my friends were in the the startup scene. We were sitting in FIDI, which meant like, I don't know, like a 10 block radius. There's like hundreds, thousands of startups, but I didn't know how, like, how do you know that they exist? And then of course, you know, people are like, go to AngelList. And then you see a long list of companies and logos and not knocking AngelList, but like, you know, it's just a long catalog of companies with their logo and like, that's it. And I just felt like that they all start kind of looking, you scroll and scroll and they all look the same and you don't get to know anything about these companies. And so for me, if you're going to work at a startup like anyone else, you're not doing it for high salary. If you are, you're doing it wrong. If you're optimizing for salary, go somewhere else. But if you're working at a startup, it matters so much who you're working with because that's like the value. And for me, it was just felt so crazy that I couldn't get to know the people I'd be working with until so much later. And I know this is like, I wasn't, you know, I'd only been coding for two years. I wasn't, you know, like a super senior expert, but I still feel like I'm a really good hire. I think that any startup would be lucky to have me because I work really hard. I'm really scrappy. I'm, you know, really good at learning on the job, like throw me into any situation. I'll figure it out. And I think I felt a little offended by all of the hoops that they ask you to, you know, you have to write a cover letter, you have to apply, you do a phone screen. Sometimes you do a screen with someone who doesn't work at the company. They're like a third party recruiter. They're not technical. You ask them a bunch of questions. They can't answer it. You wait a week. They invite you on site. You do a bunch of coding questions. Like you pair, you do some whiteboard questions. Then you come on, come back tomorrow. And then you wait another week for them to decide or give you, like, it's just like, what is all this? And that like, you never even really get to sit down and talk to the people you'll be working with. And so 
yeah, this is the pain point. And you were like, well, how do you turn this into a business? And it was like, I wish there was a resource where I could learn more about what the day-to-day was like before I even have to commit to a conversation with these people. Because maybe I don't, it's not even a good fit. And that's, yeah, it was like. And thus Key Values was born. Yeah. So this is March two years ago, pretty yeah, early 2017. on. 2017. And you're like, okay, I want to come on the Indie Hackers podcast. I think I had just <laughs> started like, the podcast yeah. a month before. I'm like, yeah, not, not, not yet, but make some money. <laughs> no, you said no. You're like, Lynn, you don't have, you're not, no. Nice try. Yeah, you said if I make money, once I make money, I can, I can do it. So that was my goal. I remember releasing a podcast episode around that time and I can't remember who it was with exactly, but the upshot from the episode was that it's okay to have competition. It's okay to enter a crowded market. And I remember that was something that you had been struggling with a lot as you kind of grappled with this initial idea. You didn't necessarily like the fact that there were other companies already helping developers find jobs. I wish I could remember the episode. Laura or... Yep, that's um, it, Laura. Me, Edgar. Is name Laura? I mean, you had been circling around this idea. It's like It was like a theme, a common theme in, in Indie Hackers. Like All these successful founders were like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like It's good to have competitors. And it took me so long for that to click. So long. And that was another aha moment. Like I actually, I remember I was like driving in a car. I listened, I was listening to your ass on, on my speakers, interviewing someone else. And I like almost, I think I pulled over because I was like, holy shit, that makes so much sense. Like in every other industry aside from tech, there's tons of people like making new sunglasses. I think that was her example. Like there are a lot of other companies that make sunglasses, but people start companies that make new sunglasses every day. And it was like water bottles, pens, papers, like whatever, notepads. That was her example. Yeah. And the other thing I think that came up over and over again was pricing. Because we knew yeah. that companies pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ugh, I mean, I learned this after Homejoy. I was like, I'm never, like, I don't want to work at a company that sells consumers again. I don't want to, like, it's just brutal yeah. to not sell to businesses. And so you knew, like, from the get go that with key values, if you help solve this problem, you were going to be making a lot of money. You could charge your customers thousands of dollars. It wouldn't be like $5 a month. It wouldn't be $10 oh, yeah, a month. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be 50. It'd be, hey, you know, we're going to pay you, Len, $2,000 referral fee because you hired an engineer for us or something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I mean, today hunters and recruiters charge 20, 30. I just talked to someone who says they charge 35% of the first year salary. That is wild. They're placing like executive level, like that is nuts how much. So recruiting is definitely like, there's a lot of money changing hands. That's what you always say. So yeah, I guess I didn't, I didn't even really thought about it as analytically as you were at the time. And now well, I'm a now. business nerd. So the I know. whole time I was just sort of, yeah, I think for, it's funny because for me at the time I was more like, I want to help people, but I don't want to charge them. And so it was like, well, there's only two sides on this marketplace. <laughs> if I'm not charging software engineers, I'm charging companies. The last thing, and the reason I'm going into all this detail is because I want to highlight some of the the good decisions that you made early on that made key values sort of the rocket ship that it's been, even though it's a lifestyle business. Okay, well, and I was like, company. whoa, whoa, I don't call it a rocket ship. <laughs> but it is for you, for you personally. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I think you did that was really good was rather than starting with a product idea, you didn't say, okay, here's exactly what I want to build. What you did was you started with the customer. You said, here's the problem that people have. Here's the thing that like is a pain point that's very valuable to solve as evidenced by the fact that money is changing hands here. And then you went in search of what's the product that's going to fix it. And after talking to so many other founders, especially first-time founders, it's more common for people to do things the other way. They say, oh, I've got a great idea for this thing I want to build. I don't know who's going to use it. I don't know why they're going to use it. I, know, I don't true. know if they'll pay money for it. I mean, that was you. I want to build this thing. That yeah, was that you. was me for like, like you 10 did years. That for, yeah, you did that for a long time. But it's- you started off with the problem and then you spent 
I guess it was like a month of you trying to figure Longer, out. Longer, man. It was, yeah, weeks. I just talked to everyone. To try to figure out what the product should be to solve that problem. Yeah, I talked to like technical recruiters. I talked to every single person I knew that was an engineer, which was a lot of people. Engineering managers. I talked. I was like researching dating sites and Myers-Briggs. I was like, I wasn't sure what it was or like, should I administer some questionnaire to help people figure out what they want and then match them? Like, I, there's, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. But it's interesting hearing you, you always talk about stuff like this and it's like why it's a good idea. But for me, it's like I was never in danger of doing it the other way because I, you know, I'm still relatively new to building. Like it would take me a long time to build something. So for me, it was like, I have to be fucking sure that this is like, I really have to plan a lot before I commit because unlike you, you could like whip up a product in a day and be like, okay, let's iterate. Let's start over. Another, like, here's a new idea for me. It would take me a lot longer. So like it does, it just in no universe would I ever just be like, let's just start building something and see if someone uses it. Like it's just I just never... It took you a long time to get to the building phase of Key Value. <laughs> I know. If anything, I probably... I did the other thing too much. Yeah, I remember I was like thinking about the idea and like what the product would look like. I also spent a whole week devoted to picking a company name. <laughs> and you were like, Lynn, start coding. Like, Write I had some e- code. I know. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even written a single line of code. And I was like thinking... So, I spent so long thinking of the name Key Values. And I'm glad I did because I great name. fucking love that name. It's one of my favorite company names of all time. Thank you. I remember it was almost Culture Code. And you liked at the time, you liked that you're laughing I was just now. like, it's the name. Get the domain. Let's go. I know. But the, the yeah, culture code was already taken. So I, I went with On this note, it's, it's funny. Remember earlier this week, I sent you that uh, screenshot from the beginning <laughs> of Indie Hackers where oh I'm like, God. oh, Len, which one of these names do you think sounds better? I said, I'm starting a community website for developers who want to learn how to build you know, profitable side projects. Yeah. Which one of these names sounds better? And I sent you this list of horrible names. You guys, Indie Hackers was almost wage breakers wage breakers can you imagine wage it, it was breakers. probably between dreamcatchers.com wage breakers i forget they were really bad names indiefounders.com was the second best founders is not bad yeah it wasn't bad but you came up with key values for your own company and at some point you finally had the vision for what the product was going to look like yeah and then building it was like a slog because well not actually i was happy with like how much I'd learned. I felt so empowered after, you know, I spent two years building websites basically for other companies as a developer. Um, so I definitely felt like that was really fun and what I knew. The design part though is really hard. I'm not a designer and it took me, oh my God, have you, do you remember like the early oh, yeah. mock? Yeah. <laughs> you would be, you were like kind of mean. You're like, uh, pass. Hard, hurts no. my eyes. That was your feedback. Hard no. hurts my, yeah. So it took a really long time designing it and looking back, like I'm really proud that it looks the way it does, but now with the experience I have, man, I need to, I would love to redo key value someday, but it's just not a priority. So, but yeah. And then of course getting the companies, like that was the really, that was so hard. It was like, man, it's so fun to look back. Cause now I like, can't even, I have so many company companies like inbound reaching out to me, wanting to be on key values that it's hard to remember. There was a time where I was begging companies to let me show up to their office, interview them. Like I was basically like, Hey, I'm Lynn. I'm going to do free labor for you. Do you accept? And companies would say no. But yeah, I mean, that took a long time. It's very analogous to when I first started Indie Hackers and there was nobody on the website. The website didn't exist. And I was just emailing all of these people, these founders saying, Hey, will you come on my website and share your revenue numbers? And everyone was like, fuck no. They're like, who are you? Absolutely not. Who are you? Yeah. Yeah. Who's your first person? Who did you? Who got? Who I said had like yes ten, ten people. I don't know who. I don't, it's, it's a good question. I, don't I remember, know who was the I first remember to say you yes. saying that you emailed like fifty people and you're waiting. You're like, I hope someone responds today. And like, no one responds. No, just and crickets. Then, and then just be like, no, no, no. But yeah. yours was, I think, a, a better sell because you're actually telling companies, hey, I'm going to help you with your hiring process, and I will come in and put together a profile that will help oh, you. Hello, that's what you could have said too. 
Like you were, this is, this is, this is where my sales skills come in now. By the way, I learned so much sales in the last year, but this is like, so for, for anyone starting out and you're like offering a free service, cause that's most how people usually, you know, get started. You should make sure that you realize you are providing a service. Like you're doing something for free. If for you and me both, it's actually really analogous where it's like, Hey, I'm going to help tell your story. I'm going to help you with branding. It's content. That's going to be quality that you can share. It promotes you. It's hosted on a third party site. Like this is like you, I mean, yeah, you probably didn't do that, but I didn't, and to be fair, I didn't really know how to do it either, which is why so many people said no. We just glossed over a whole thing, which is something I don't think we can take for granted, which is that you knew eventually that your business model would be to charge companies. But in the very beginning, it was free. Yeah, so you ended free. up onboarding companies, charging them zero dollars. Why, yeah. why was that? Why was that? Well, I mean, it's like I, if I'm going to launch a site with a bunch of company profiles, there has to be company profiles. <laughs> if you go to a site and there's like one company profile, you're like, cool, bruh. Like, <laughs> Do you ever consider though, like going to these companies and saying, hey, I'm launching the site. It doesn't exist yet. Uh, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars to have a profile. I like didn't even cross my mind. I don't even think you would, I don't think anyone advised. well, I can't remember, but no, remember for either. me, I was like, hell no, that's going to take way too long. Doing sales takes time. So if my goal was to get as many companies on as possible, reducing the friction to get them on is the goal. So yeah, yeah. there was this whole plan. It was like, get enough companies onto key values. And then once there's enough companies, launch and start mm-hmm. getting developers onto key values. And once there's like enough matches, then yeah. start charging people. Yeah, it's like a chicken and egg, classic marketplace problem. Yeah, but I remember it's, I ended up launching in September of 2017. It was like 20 companies, 22 companies. And everyone's like, how did you get those companies? The answer is, it was basically a catalog of all the companies that ex-homejoyers now worked. But it's like hilarious. But yeah, I just like milked my network again and was like, hey, I'm like trying to help your company hire, which every company is struggling to do. And like, yeah, let me let me help you do that for free, free of charge. Come on, say yes. What's the process like of contacting a company and like creating a profile for them? Because I think it sounds, you know, it sounds well and good when you just say, oh, I found 22 companies. But who were you emailing? Who did you talk to? How long did it take? Ugh, I was so, it was a lot of work. I got so many no's. I, it was honestly like everyone... If like I see people struggling to get started too, and it's the answer is straight up grind and hustle. Like I just I would show up, I would email, I would call, I would text, I would do cold emails to like the CTO or founder. I mean, I just hit up people. At some point, I remember this like the huge hurdle I got I was like, am I being annoying if I email three times without a reply yet? And at some point, I was like, fuck it, no, I'm just gonna keep emailing. I'm like, I'm just gonna be annoying. Sorry, I'm annoying. I would say it in my email. Sorry, I'm annoying. This is like my fifth email to you. Un- you haven't responded yet, but just wanted to check in. And and eventually, some people would be like, "Thank you so much for following up." Actually, They're like, I'm sorry. Like, thanks for bringing this to my inbox again and again. Like, I'm interested. Do you remember what some of the first things you did were to attract developers to your website after you got this first batch of companies to create profiles? Launching is basically crickets. I mean, I posted on Indie Hackers. I didn't even like, I wasn't really even on Twitter yet. I feel like, I don't know. I I mean, there wasn't, there was like no developer traffic until I launched. And then after I launched, it was great. And then there was, of course, the, what is it? The trough of sorrow. The trough of sorrow. The post-launch trough of sorrow, which was like so much traffic. And then where'd it go? Where'd everyone go? Come back, come back. How'd you launch? Yeah, I launched on Hacker News and on Product Hunt. All of that was kind of a mistake. I actually write, I wrote about all of this. This is my first post that I ever wrote about key values was on Indie Hackers because it's so like everything comes full circle. But yeah, I launched on um, Hacker News, which to be fair, I like always knew that Hacker News would be a channel, a distribution channel. So in a lot of ways, I actually built key values and designed it with the Hacker News audience in mind. 
Because you just knew there was a ton of developers there who needed jobs. I mean, yeah. I mean, even still today, go to the ask thread and it's like, how do I interview? Or how, like, how do you learn about companies? culture before you join. Like there's all these people, people always want to know these things. So, I mean, it was a recurring theme. How'd the launch go? It went really great, man. I was like, it was like so high on life that day. It was, I, was, I remember being physically tired from being excited all day. Um, no, it went really great. I mean, I had basically no expectations. I had never launched anything before, like let alone I mean, I guess it wasn't a business yet, but I never even like worked on a side project long enough to see it through to launch it, you know? And so, yeah, it was only positive things. So you mentioned that you had a trough of sorrow period after you launched. Uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's basically the shape of this graph where you launch day one, day two. You huge got spike. A huge spike in traffic. You're riding a high. You just feel amazing. And then people leave and you realize that your site isn't that good at keeping people You're like, coming they're back. They're going to come back, right? Oh, no, they're no, not. They're gone. They're gone. That's it. Cool. Okay, now what? Yeah, I re- you know what's funny is that I thought uh, naively that, like, all you needed to do was launch. That, I told you that that, that, that wasn't so funny? enough. I told you that that wasn't enough. I know, but, like, in a, yeah, I guess. I mean, it was kind of an experiment because we, we weren't sure whether or not people would come back. We, you, we couldn't no, know. You were like, no, you, no you, were, you told me. I think everyone told me, but I just... It just felt like such a monumental like rite of passage to to even launch, like put yourself out there to build, to put anything that you've been building out there that that's all I could focus on. And then yeah, like I wake up September sixth, two thousand seventeen. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> or like I mean, there was like a little trail, but yeah, there was, it was basically that was it. Yeah, it's weird to look back. I don't know. It's so funny, like all these things I remember feeling that way, and now it's like so. I just feel like I was so naive, or it's like it's so cute that I thought that or that I felt that way. What'd you do to sort of combat this problem? What were your next steps? I mean, truthfully, I'm still in it. Like, I remember we set a goal. My goal was to have 2,000 sessions a day without, like, you know, pushing anything. Without do- Like, I could just go on vacation and I would have 2,000 sessions a day. And I'm still working towards that goal. Like, it's hard work. Um, and this is the part of, like, just showing up every day for two years. But content marketing, a little SEO... I launched a side project. I did side project marketing inspired by the, what was it? Unsplash crew guys. I don't know. But side, this, someone posted on Hacker News. I don't even remember. I'm not giving credit. But I saw, we saw this post on Hacker News, or sorry, on Indie Hackers about someone who had done side project marketing. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I should do that because content marketing was like, mm, not that fun. And so I built Culture Queries, which was... This tool, it's still, you can go to it on Key Values Now, but it suggests good questions for people to ask their interviewers. So the idea was that developers would come to this thing, basically use this tool, and, mm-hmm. and the process of you helping them ask good questions in interviews, you would sort of push key values and be like, hey, by the way, here's some great companies. That match those values? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then like you can join my newsletter and all this stuff. So I think that really helps. But yeah, there's no one fix. It's not like you flip a switch and it's like, oh, turn on growth. Yay, it started. It's working. It's just a constant... Yeah, I think most companies struggle with growth. It's tough. It's the hard part. And for you, the the easy part was growing the the company side of your marketplace. Yeah, you were yeah. really good at convincing people to come onto the Key Values platform, especially since it was free. <laughs> but it was hard to find developers. Yeah, for sure. And it's still that's still the case. I think the crux is getting like senior, high quality engineers to visit Key Values. And it's also tricky because it's not like a it's not like indie hackers. But you want people to show up every day or every week. Usually, people. Yeah. And then I also, oh my God, I forgot that I also did YC to help. I thought that there was some, 
I mean, this is a long story. I don't know where to It's a very long story. <laughs> I'm like, where do I Let's start? go into it. Tell us why you decided to apply to Y Combinator. Yeah. Well, actually, so you might have to remind me because I'm going to, I'm not going to answer this question. <laughs> answer a different one. I just want to say that I never, ever would have started any company or and definitely key values without indie hackers. Because like I said, after my experience at HomeJoy, I was like, uh-uh, this is not for me. Like I was convinced that the only way to start a company was that you pitch to investors, you get them to give you money, you hire a big team, and then there's all this pressure to grow really, really, really fast. And I just like didn't subscribe to that model. And it was only through you talking to you as a friend, not even like really using indie hackers at the time, to be honest, but for those months of you just being like, oh, I just talked to this really cool guy. He's like... I don't, I'm making something up. I don't remember who was who, but they're like, I don't know, this is one guy living in the Midwest and he just built this thing and now he's making 500K a year by himself and he doesn't even work that much. Isn't that cool? And I was like, yeah, that is really cool. And then you're like, hey, I met this other guy who like, you know, he, he blogs a lot and then he started this newsletter and he was like, hey, people love my newsletter. Maybe I'll just charge people $3 a month to read my newsletter. And now he's making 40K a month. And I was like, What? People do. I was like, holy shit, there's other ways to start a business. And so for me, that was like always the plan. So the YC thing was like a really random thing. Like I totally didn't think about doing YC. And then, you know, I talked to someone there like, oh, you know, applications are due soon. Like maybe you should apply. I was like, no, 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 because my experience at HomeJoy, companies that raise money, not so good. But yeah, I, you know, I think I got Jedi mind tricked. Someone was like, you know, it's a really good introspective exercise. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I filled out the application. It really, it honestly was like, I actually recommend everyone fill out an YC application. It's just a nice, helps people zoom out because you're just so focused. You're like so close to what you're working on every day. It's nice to like step back and see it holistically. Um, And then, yeah, I got the interview and I remember you... I don't even remember. Did you tell me not to do the interview? I can't remember your advice. I think but. I told you not to focus on the interview until a few days before it was going to come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was I, that you knew it would just consume all of your mindset, all of your No, time. that was good advice. That's so true. So I like, I was like, okay, I got the interview. Won't think about it until like the weekend before. And then, yeah, that went well. I got in and it was, to, at that point, I, that's when it was like, oh, do I even really want to do YC? Because I thought that they were going to make me be Homejoy. And I was so scared of being Homejoy. <laughs> Homejoy was great, but I just didn't want to like have that experience and be the leader of that. Well, yeah. Like the investors, investors in Silicon Valley, they want to see you going for the goal. It was right? stressful. Wanna... Like Homejoy was stressful. And like, I don't even know what it would have been like to be a founder, one of the founders for a company like that. So I was so attached to the bootstrapper, self-funded indie hacker. Is that like the definition of yeah, you're an indie hacker. Yeah, like that's like to me what the identity of indie hacker was. And so doing YC was like selling out in a way. And so I, I don't know. It was weird. Like, I don't know. It sounds stupid because everyone's like, you got into YC. Like, of course you do it. But for me, it just, I wasn't, I wasn't positive. But the main reason that I did was like, I am helping really cool companies who are doing really cool things talk about them and like get, getting on people's radar because people want to know about them. And YC is, a network of really cool companies doing really cool things that no one's ever heard of. So it was like perfect. And I was definitely open because again, this is like my first time ever doing anything. I wanted to stay open-minded about different ways to run and build the the business. So YC, it's like a three-month program. Companies go through it. I regularly hear from people who go through YC and I felt this myself that it's the most productive that they have ever (laughs) been. It's three months. Was it for you? I think it was. I think during YC, it's just this combination of having a batch of peers doing the same thing. And you've gotten to this like sort of prestigious 
you know, institution. You just all really want to go fast. You want to impress each other. You yeah. want to check in with your partners every week, you know, and show progress. For you, it was the opposite. God damn. Like, I'm like, if that was true for you too. I'm jealous. Yeah, I was not. It was like the least productive three months of my life. Uh, no, that's not true. That's not fair to say. But I was definitely not nearly as productive as you were or anyone else was. Why was YC so hard for you? YC was... Like, I'm not sure how to describe it. YC was really hard for me for a number of reasons. One of them was just that I was just so, and this is true for everyone, but I just didn't handle it very well, was just so overwhelmed by the amount of advice. Like pre-YC, I'm in a vacuum. I have, I'm like in a desert looking for water, water being advice from smart people. And then you go to YC and you're like, drowning in an ocean. There's all these smart people. There's all the partners are super experienced founders. They have so much good advice to give. But of course that advice is not like there, a lot of it was conflicting and it just was really confusing for me. And then of course there was all the pressure of like leading up to demo day. So you, you know, YC is three months. You pick one metric and you just draw, like you just focus a hundred percent to growing that number. And for me, it was like, I could like three weeks in me and my the partners and like even talking to you, like we couldn't even agree on what the metric I was trying to focus on. And it was, then I was like, do I even want to do demo day and fundraise? And they're like, why else would you do IC? And it's, it was, it was really confusing. It thrash. was a lot. It was a lot of thrash. Hashtag thrash. That's like, I don't know what else to say about it. It's funny because earlier I was talking about you being such a good student when I was sort of helping you learn to code. And I think that played into you doing YC because you cared so much about whatever so Asian. About I'm like learning. so Asian. I just want an A plus and like that's so true. I just wanted to be like an A plus student and anyone who gives anyone who gives me really good advice and I think they're smart. My it is like ingrained in me to follow the advice, do a good job, and then thank them. Like that is like I want to make people who help me proud of me. And there was just way too many people to make proud. I think that was like it was just like a, my own internal issues. I don't know. Man. It's a tough thing for, I think, any founder, which is that you have all sorts of advice flying at you from every channel. Even if you're not in Y Combinator, even if you don't have mentors or advisors, you might be reading books or blogs or you know various videos on YouTube and you have to sort of filter out yeah. which advice applies to you, which advice you just don't have time to do. Yeah. And I think some of the advice around like so I I had no experience building a company. I'd never, you know, like I was new to all of that. So it's hard for me to filter because I don't have any data to pull from, you know, I don't have like, I don't have like a pre-existing mental schema or like rubric to filter advice through. Cause I'm new to this. But the one thing that I did know was like, I know how I want to live my life and I know how taking investment will make me feel if I have people to answer to. And if I could, I don't know, I just, I knew that part. So I don't know. There's like lots of things going on just like with the tactical advice versus just the eat, like the religious question of like what kind of company I wanted to build all that together just made for three months of straight crying. That's almost. <laughs> <laughs> I cried so much. You cried a lot. That's uh, I think the religious part of it is, is big. What do you want to do? Like what is your actual goal? Yeah. And if somebody doesn't share the same goal as you. Their advice doesn't help. Yeah. Their advice doesn't, doesn't matter. But it's so interesting. It's like, People ask advice and they're so bad at asking for advice. It's like people always ask like, how do I be successful? Like what the fuck question is? That? I hate seeing that question so much because it's like who – like first of all, what does success even mean? Like what are your circumstances? Like I don't know. It's just like there's just like the most vague question. Yeah, what does success look like for you? It depends completely. I know. And so like I think – and this is another thing. Like it's not a knock on YC. I'm – looking back, I'm so glad I did YC. Of course, if I could do it again, I would do it very differently. But – um, it was partially my fault too. Like going through YC, I was naive. I didn't, I genuinely didn't understand that a lot, like the 
goal of YC is to go to demo day and fundraise. And I actually, I think if you talk to some partners at YC, they won't even agree with that statement. But it felt like that in the batch. Like everyone was like, why would you do, do YC if you weren't trying to go to demo day and fundraise? And I was like, oh shit, I don't belong here. So I don't know. Explain what demo day is and explain uh, the story behind you deciding not to get on the stage at the end of the I feel like you should describe demo day because I've never been to a demo day, but (laughs) I went to demo day like nine years ago. Yeah, it's probably really different. Demo day is like everyone, I'm like not even confident I know because I just dipped before demo day. I didn't go and I've never been to one since, but every founder or one person from each company goes on stage. I think it's a 60 second pitch to a room full of investors and you're just trying to get people to give you money. And I, yeah. And for me, it was like, it was just also conflicting because you read all these essays from like PG and he's like, there's just conflicting advice everywhere. Whereas like, if you don't need to fundraise, don't. If you don't need to raise money and get, you know, like have investors on board, then don't. And so I was like, okay, I don't need to. I was, I had been prepared this whole time to build, do this bootstrap self-funded thing and live super poor and frugal and eat ramen every night. I was like, I was prepared for that. So I was just confused that, other people at YC were still telling me, like, you should fundraise now. It'll never be easier. Like, you never know. Like, you might not need the money now, but you might later and it'll be too late. And it was just like everyone else was so excited about Demo Day. It was just really confusing. Why were you so confident that you didn't need to raise money? Well, because just the math. Like, we talked. I don't have burn. I had a bunch of money saved. And I was confident that I would be able to start charging companies soon enough. And, like, worst case scenario, I would just, like, do the the bank loan credit card game worst case scenario worst worst case scenario and i but i was like i mean i was confident i i'm good at living in san francisco on 30k a year it sucks but i can do it i've have years of experience so i was i mean i just felt confident that i could do it i wasn't confident in saying it which is why the thrashing happened during yc i think i felt i think i spent a, the bulk of yc defending my position and then it was my fault because I'd be like, ah, maybe. I, w- I flip-flopped so much and it must have been so frustrating for everyone, including you. Honestly, I'm really, it must have been so frustrating for you. It was frustrating, but I think it was sort of a process of discovery for you because you got so many strong arguments from very smart people about here's why you should raise money. Here's the ups yeah. of, of going this sort of VC-funded path. And you had your own ND hacker instinct where it's like you didn't want to raise money and you really wanted to do a lifestyle business that would make you personally happy. And you were super... I don't know if scarred is the right word, but you were just cautious after your home joy experience. Because so, you so. can't ever give up, I guess, like Buffer did this. You can give your investors back the money. But I think it, for me, it's it's a pretty permanent decision. Like if you fundraise. That's it. Yeah. Like it's, it is hard to go back in time, like buy back your equity from investors. It doesn't happen super often. And yeah, the hard part was that it's there. All the advice was true and it just depended on the, on your goals. And that was like, a personal question. So I think I just had a lot of soul searching during YC of just like, what do I want? Because there isn't right or wrong answers. And the, the truth is like, if you raise like a, from angels, it's not the same as raising your series A or series B. The pressures are different. It's depends on who your, who your investors are. Like everyone's like, you know, angel, they're really cool angel investors who will help you grow your business. They're like mentors. But I don't know. I just, I felt like it wasn't for me. One of the interesting things to talk about here is your financial situation. You mentioned briefly that one of the reasons that you weren't too concerned with not raising money is, you know, number one, you had the money from YC, but number two, you had your savings. You'd literally spent a year and a half, two years contracting at a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah. You were living super frugally, even though you're an SF. And so I don't know what your runway was. I, think I you knew had like I had two or like three years. Yeah. Like, I mean, it would be savings. It would, yeah, exactly. I definitely had like two years of run, runway before, even 
especially with the YC money. Yeah. So I felt like there's no reason to. And honestly, people really underestimate how much energy goes into doing demo day and fundraising. And since I'm a one woman show, if I'm spending two months fundraising, that means no one's working on the product, no one's doing sales, no one's growing developer traffic. And so like, it was just a really expensive decision to me. And just, it wasn't, and I know this sounds like all hippy dippy and whatever, but I just think the best way for me in making decisions is just doing what energizes me because, because I had two years of runway, it wasn't an issue of like running out of money. It was more a concern that I would get frustrated or like uninspired, unmotivated and quit. So that was what I was like protecting against. Yeah. Quitting seemed to always be on the table. It was always something sort of looming. Like, if you don't like this, you'll quit. If, yeah, I'm so good at quitting. If I hate something, I'm going to fucking leave it. Like, no questions asked. So I loved Home... Like, I'm Home Joy. Whoa. I did love Home Joy. No, I love... <laughs> I, I do love Home Joy. But um, I loved key values so, so much. And it was like, I love doing what I'm doing. I, there's nothing like... It was perfect to me at the time, even. Like, I enjoyed working on it. And I just wanted to make sure I didn't stop enjoying that enjoyment. Because then I would quit. If my heart fell out of it, I would have quit. And so I think for me, it wasn't like, how do I have enough money to make it? It was like, how do I make sure I enjoy this long enough to not quit? Okay. So that's the story of an indie hacker going through Y Combinator, <laughs> uh, not doing demo day, not raising money while all of your peers are you know, tweeting about how many millions of dollars they raised. Coincidentally, I was on the YC podcast not that long ago. And the title of my interview was, your whole goal is not to quit. And that's what you did. You did the things that you liked and you avoided the things that you didn't so that you wouldn't quit. What did you end up doing after YC Demo Day? I mean, even like the week right before Demo Day, I just was, I was that Homer Simpson meme where just he like fades into the bushes. I just wanted alone time. I needed, that was like the, I needed some isolation for real. But yeah, I think I just went back to, to focusing on the company. The one, I mean, there are definitely lots of good things I got out of YC. Don't get me wrong. But one of them for sure was that they pressured me to start charging. So during YC, I mean, it was funny. They're like, wait, you're providing value. Companies that you have let onto key values for free are hiring engineers. Like, what the fuck, Lynn? Charge them. And there's like, that was a huge debate too of like when I should start charging, when's the right time. And we could, I could talk about that for a long time because I think that's just, there's no, I, you're it, looking it, it at me. It ties into like what you're was looking your looking at me. It ties into like that whole the thing you were mentioning was what was your North Star metric? And I think going into YC, your North Star metric was, I need to get more developer traffic. traffic. Yeah, developer the website's traffic. not valuable unless I have developers. And then YC was telling you, hey, it's already valuable. You're already providing a service to right. these companies. Charge them money. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I like very lukewarm efforts was trying to charge and it was bad. The first like five companies I reached out to, they were like, no. And then other ones were like, yeah, yeah. You know, like if once it's valuable to us, we'll pay. And I was like, okay, cool. Like that's a positive signal. Um, but I'll, no one wrote me a check until... Actually, it's around this. It's right about now, at the end of February, beginning of March. And um, but they were like, it was. I didn't even know how much to charge. It was a. It was a long journey for that. And this basically 2018, I would characterize it as like becoming learning sales. So walk us through this process of these very first sales calls that you made. The very first companies who paid for key values. How did you get them to pay? How much did you charge them? Who was saying no? Who was saying yes? And why? The whole process. Yeah. No. It's like it. It's hard to to describe because it was random AF. Um, the first thing I did was reach out to companies that were on key values already for free and like had positive feedback from me, people that had hired and I asked. And um, I think it's one thing I underestimated is that it's really hard to get people who've had something for free and convert them into paying customers. And so that was one mistake. I should have just had everyone new, like everyone that was new that was onboarding and 
starting to charge, but I didn't think about that. And then it was just kind of looking at other job boards. There are other job boards that, you know, are like anywhere from $200 to $500 to post per month. And so I was thinking about doing monthly subscriptions, three months, six months, 12 months. I was experimenting like crazy. Um, people at YC, I mean, it was cool actually. Other founders, we were all going through the same thing of price testing. And it was like, how are you guys choosing? And one of them is just straight up throwing out numbers. It's like 1,000, 10,000, 5,000, like until someone says yes. And if someone says yes too quickly, you know, raise it. And yeah, it was literally just like rant. I should have been a little more strategic, had more structure, but it was, it was, it was kind of just like, you have to ask and it forced me to talk to a lot of people about like what value they did find out of key values. And then there's the whole journey of like onboarding new companies. So at some point it was like, okay, it's clear that you should just start charging new companies, getting people who are free to start paying is really hard. And so my process at the beginning was just like anytime a company you know, reached out, I would just send them the same email, regardless of the size of the company, regardless if it was a founder or a recruiter emailing me, regardless of how many people they were trying to hire. Like it was just the same email. And it was like, I think I started with 1800 for six months and 3000 for a full year. And yeah, some people said yes. And most people probably said no. And yeah, but that's one lesson for sure is that I started doing sales calls and that was much, much better. $1,800 for six months, $3,000 for a whole year on your platform. I just want to highlight how much more you were charging than the average indie hacker I talked to charges for their business. How much are people charging? I go to indie hackers meetups and I talk to founders and it's, this is like the most common thing that I hear is, oh, I'm going to charge people, you know, five or $10 a month for, for the thing that I'm building. Is, yeah, but people like tend to build these products that they oh, can only charge five like, to ten dollars yeah, a month yeah, for. Yeah. Like, oh, I've got a to-do list app, and no one's going to pay more than ten bucks a month for it. To-do list app, yeah. so many. And I'm just like, don't build a to-do list app. Then I it's going to be so like the number. If anyone wants to build a to-do list app, why don't you just reach out to Coral and ask him to show you the to-do list app that he built for years? It's just hard years. because you need something one. like a thousand customers to get to the point where you're even sustaining your lifestyle as an entrepreneur. You're charging five bucks a month. I did the math. We were like, okay, my goal is 300 K and that's at $3,000 a year. That's a hundred customers. I think I can do that. Yeah. You can talk to a hundred customers and sell to a hundred. Might take a while, but I can do a hundred. Hundreds way less daunting than a thousand. The other thing that's cool is you're pretty much spending all of your time doing the things that you hear in startup manuals that you should be doing. Talk to your customers, right? You're talking to them, you're learning how they get value, et cetera. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of founders don't do these things, partly it's because it's uncomfortable. You sort of have a personality where you like talking to yeah, people. I love so you, talking to people. You're just naturally good at that. But partly it's because the product that you built was so simple. A key values is not not complicated. The secret at is all. not like the code. It's not like you spent like eight months whipping together this website. A lot of people could probably build the website in like a week yeah. or a few days. So you but didn't that's not really the value. have to. Yeah, the code is not the value. Yeah, the code is not the value. You, you didn't have to spend all day, every day, fixing bugs, tweaking your product, et cetera. Like you had infinite time really to just talk to customers and figure out what they wanted. And so I think you were able to sort of progress in 2018 along this process of making your product more valuable, figuring out the message, et cetera. Whereas other people might take two or three times as long to do that because they're spending so much time writing code. You know, it's funny, actually, I won't say the name, but I just saw on Hacker News this week that a company in my batch folded and they were like a really technical product. Yeah, again, no, not too many details. And they're just going to open source it. And I think that was maybe one of it. I mean, it was just really complicated product, but it's also hard to get people to use it if you're building product first. So yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I just can't imagine falling in that same scenario because I'm just not like, I don't know. I just 
I'm it's in another, no danger of doing that. It's another reason not to build a to-do list app because then you're like, all right, well, I've got to catch up to all these other to-do list apps that have like a thousand features. So I've got three years of code that I need to I write before TLDR, I can charge if there's And there's people listening who like have successful to-do list apps. I'm imagining like, someone listening right now, like as they're coding their to-do list app, they're like, shit, side yeah. eye, side eye. And it's not just to-do list apps, to be fair. It's just very attractive to founders to build and try to sell these inexpensive, very code-intensive apps, especially as a developer. Uh, and your advantage was kind of almost like your lack of confidence in your development skills. Yeah, I know. Like it's like literally it was like energy, a blessing. Like your desire to spend your time talking to people. I know. And this is it's so full circle that you were like, I don't know if you're going to like coding because it's so, I mean, I definitely, even when I was coding a lot, I was still super social. And I think it's like, that's just what I'm good at. And so in general, I think that people should build things where they're at their strengths. And even if coding is your strength, you should definitely beware of building something. Like what that, if you're really good at coding, what that means is you could build a simple product so much better than all the other people building a simple product. But don't go and spend three years in your room by yourself building this product that's beautiful that no one ever sees. I think your, I think your, your progress in 2018 it speaks for itself. You went from making $0 a month at the very beginning of 2018. To doing about 80K a quarter, yeah. To 80K a quarter. What are some of the bigger milestones in that process? Oh my goodness. I'm like, my memory's so bad. First renewal, that was big. Um, I think every time I placed an engineer, that was super huge. It's so fun to celebrate with a company. They're like, we found an engineer who found us new key values. Thank you so much. They're wonderful. Like that, those, every single time that felt like a huge milestone. I think there's, I, I'm so like thinking about sales that I can't help but look through this lens. The, one of the sales milestones, like aha moments I had was just to actually jump on the phone and like talk to people and sell. Before, as I said before, I was just sending these emails and there was this whole question I remember during YC was like, should you have a pricing page? I think there was a lot of, I had, someone had a really strong opinion that I should make key value self-serve. And I think at some, there was like this moment of realizing that if it's a complicated or not even if it's a complicated, if it's a product that people don't get right away, it's not obvious. Key values is not obvious. It's like, is it a job board? Is it an employer branding? I'm, I'm so confused. Are you an ATS, which is an applicant tracking system? Like people were not so clear. It's like jump on the phone, ask them, have them tell you what their problems are and then tell them how specifically your product can solve those pain points and then mention pricing. So I think that was just like a huge that was like, once I figured that out, it was like literally like a switch. Sales were just going so much easier. Raising prices was a huge milestone, I suppose. I mean, it's all, yeah. Tell us about that process. How did you raise your prices? Yeah, I, it was, I just like started saying a higher number. And I remember in the beginning, like in the middle of a sales call, I'd be like, okay, I like had like a Google doc open. It's like, say $5,000 a year, say $6,000 a year. I'd be like nervous, nervous. And then they would say something and I would just like, right as I was saying the sentence, right before I said the, the dollar amount, I'd be like, it's, um... Three, it's it's three thousand dollars. I would just like go back and like backpedal again, and so it was it was just like it's just a confidence thing. And then eventually, I think I started talking to companies, and I had a, I have a sales guru, so what I like to call him, Danny. He definitely coached me a lot, and he was just like, say a big number, you can always come down. If anything, companies like to hear that they give discounts. So like, say ten thousand. If they're like, see their look at it's video call, see, judge their face. Some companies are like, okay, yeah, that sounds normal. In which case, you're like, good thing you said ten thousand. And if they're like. They like make, they pause a lot or anything, like work down from there. Give like, you know, if you give them a discount, ask for something. So this is another thing. Like if you're like going to give a discount, don't do it for free. If make it instead of 10,000, like, okay, well, I'll make it 9,000. If you promise to, you know, do a case study at the end of this, participate in a case study and also be a reference call. If another company wants to talk to a, a, a customer and then they're like, ah, oh, still look like $8,000. And then you'll help us, you know, you'll help me 
write some content or like participate in some blog, you know, just like ask for things every time you give a discount. I think one of the coolest things for me watching you go through this process was how much you were not only just selling companies on the value you could provide, but also learning about the value that you could provide while talking to them. I know it happens so gradually because I'm doing these calls like, you know, once a day or like definitely at least once a week. But my pitch for key values changed so much. It got so like, but it was just so gradual. I forget that that happened. Yeah, no, you, I, I just feel like I don't understand why people don't do more sales. Like, how do you, they're too how busy do you writing know, code. I know. How do you know what to build if you aren't talking to people who are buying it or going to use it? And I think just hearing companies tell me what their pain points were, talking to existing customers and asking them like what's working, what's not. Like I learned so much about my own product that I didn't even plan. Like there are use cases that I didn't even consider when I started. I remember and, one of the ones that stood out to me was that companies were basically like sending their profile out to engineers as sort of like a... As their outbound outreach emails, yeah. And com- and just so you know, like recruiters see anywhere like single digit percentage of response rates, including the ones that are no. And there's a company, um, they started, they're experimenting, they started using linking to their key values profile and their outbound outreach emails, like making their emails much shorter and like just letting, letting engineers opt into all this information and they have a 47% response rate. Isn't that crazy? Like 47% response rate for cold outbound emails. That is wild. Like for any, even for me reaching out cold outreach, like that'd be huge response rate. So yeah, I, that was like that's a use case I didn't even think about before. And talking to my customers helps me learn the own the value of my own product. So we've been going for an hour and fifteen minutes here. Ooh, we're just gonna keep going. My bad. We're just gonna keep going because we're like we've got a lot left to learn. I think, uh, and I want to keep talking about this progression of your sales and sort of analyze why it worked, why you succeeded where a lot of other people have trouble. I look at your customers list right now on key values. You've got a lot of high profile customers. You've got companies like. Gusto paying for key values. You've got Intercom, Coinbase, Medium is a key values customer. Yeah. Ease, NerdWallet, Webflow. These can't have all been companies that you like had friends at. How did you how did you find these companies and get them interested in what you were doing? Out of all the ones that you just listed, I think those were literally all inbound. I'm trying I'm trying like going through the companies you just listed. But yeah, there are so all of the companies that at this point, like all my sales are inbound, which is great. And yeah, it's just like jumping on the phone with them and understanding what their pain points were. They, I mean, these customers, the ones that you just listed came at different time points, but, um, how does that happen? How do these big companies hear about you and reach out and ask you, can I get in key value? Yeah, and the, I'm curious about the whole process. Like how do they first hear about you? What is the process like for them to even get in touch? Like, where do they go on your website? What do you say? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Cause actually I was just thinking like you and I talk about a lot of stuff, key values related, but since you aren't a sales expert. Like you never had to do sales for indie hackers or any of your businesses. That's really. not true. I did, oh, uh, my bad, my bad. I did sales for advertising for, Oh indie hackers. yeah. That's that was true. Also a lot of time that, on the phone, right, talking right, to companies, right. et cetera. but I'm not a sales expert. You're right. Like you yeah. Found... So like, I feel like it's just funny cause we don't talk about it as much cause it's not your, no. d- like your domain, but yeah. So first thing that's cool is that every time I jump on a call, I'm always, the first question I ask is like, how did you come across key values? And it's so awesome. And like the most rewarding thing to hear that most of the time it's like one of our engineers or engineering managers came across it and sent it to us or sent it to me. Um, sometimes I'm talking to the CTO and they're like, I saw it. I don't even know where I saw it. I think someone tweeted about it. Then I saw it on Hacker News and then someone else sent it in the Slack channel. And I was like, so people are just seeing it. And then the other cool thing is there's like, I don't know, maybe one out of six or seven calls, someone's like, if I'm talking to a recruiter, they're like, actually, we were interviewing this engineer and they asked us why we weren't on key values. 
And that's how we heard about it. We were like, what is this thing? We feel bad that we're not on it because we're trying to close this person. And so that's been really cool because it means I'm reaching the right people. Yeah. What's interesting is that like ultimately I'm serving this two-sided marketplace, but engineers that are looking for jobs end up finding jobs. And then when they're at a company that isn't on key values, they're the, they're a champion for key values. And then when I work with companies, like it always, I always work really, really closely with, you know, the team to create the content. And oftentimes it's a handful of engineers. Like I work with engineering managers, whatever. And now that I've been doing this for almost two years, sometimes those people leave their, leave those companies and they're like, Hey, you know, I remember when we chatted, like, I'm just wondering if we could, you know, pick your brain or if you had, like, if you want to help me make mint intros or like, you know, then they become users on the other end. And I'm like, of course, happy for them to use key values on the other side. So it's like this cycle or what do you call those things again? Remember the flywheel, 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 flywheel. It's like a flywheel. I like that you mentioned that uh, I'm not a sales expert. And so you didn't really come to me for advice for sales. And so I've sort of, it's kind of a black box for me, how your sales process works at key values. And I think the thing that's, that's cool about it is it's kind of a reflection on a core part of your personality that I think makes you a more successful founder than a lot of people, which is that you seek out help. You're a solo founder, but it's kind of like you have all of these co-founders who are helping you build different parts of your business. And you yeah. do this to a better degree than almost anybody that I've ever met. It's one of my Thanks. like core weaknesses, actually, is I don't ask for help. What? I don't find people to help me. I just recently started doing it. No, and you're partly, so right. It, partly it's because of watching you and how effective you've been at getting people sort of on oh your side God, to fill in like, the gaps. Yeah. So, for example, you briefly mentioned Danny. Who yeah. is Danny? How did he? How did you find this person? How did he play a role? So in So random. Values? Danny, actually, someone. So someone that I met introduced us because of something totally unrelated. It was like, what's it like leaving a company and just like, what? How do you figure out next steps? Like basically the soul searching career. Like how did you? You know, all the things you've been asking me today. Like how did you know what to do after you dropped out of grad school? How did you know what you wanted to do after you left Homejoy? And it was like just transition questions. And it's just like, hey, Lynn has been through a lot of transitions. Like she's a nice person to talk to. So we started talking. And then like at the end of the hour, I was like telling him about key values and like how I'm struggling with sales. And he's like, oh yeah, I've done like 15 years of sales. Like I've what, what kind of questions do you have? And I was like well, like one thing I'm working on right now is this company asked for this. I don't remember. It's like something, something that's like not that remarkable, but you know, anyone who's doing sales, like, how do I respond to this email? Like you like obsess over every word and how you phrase things. And then at some point, like our meeting, we had to go and I was like, you know, can I pay you just like, I don't know, like a couple hours to sit next to me and just walk through all my emails and like figure out my flow. Like one question was like, should I do have a pricing page? And without hit like, no, no hesitation. He was like, do not have a pricing page. And it was like, so funny. It was like something I was grappling with for months. And like all these people had different, like, like, and he just knew he was like, based on what your product is, you should not have a pricing page. So obvious. And I was like, I just was like, oh my God, I want to keep talking to this guy. But yeah, we ended up becoming friends. And I was like, of course I want to compensate him for his time and his wisdom. And yeah, that's just one example of you for sure. You know, Kadrin, Anurag of Render, which now Indie Hackers is now hosting. Yeah. You meet all these people who are brilliant at what they do. Uh, there's such common advice that you should surround yourself with people who are good at things. You surround yourself with people who are doing the things that you want to do. Like you're kind of the average of the five or 10 people sure. that you spend the most time around. And you, you know, completely surround yourself with people who are really impressive and smart and helpful in all these different areas. And so what they're doing rubs off on you. If you're ever doing anything, you know, super wrong strategically, like I'll probably comment on it. You know, if you ever yeah. do something wrong with sales, Danny will chime in. But I mean, this is like, it's God, this is everything is so consistent, but this is a tweet that you had not that long ago. You were like, people underestimate how much 
of what you, your behavior is, is just imitating people around you. Yeah. And I think you were saying it like, I don't actually know why you wrote that. I don't remember what it was in response to. I you. feel like you said it kind of like in a hating way, like everyone's just copying everyone. But I was <laughs> like, no, that's like, that's a superpower. Like if it is like, you don't even realize, people don't even realize how much you just imitate the people around you. Assuming you're imitating good people. If you could just, surround yourself yeah, with good people, you, then that's great. Just surround yourself with people you'd like to be more like, and then naturally just organically, everyone's a chameleon. You just end up kind of absorbing what they do and you just kind of become that. How do you do that? It's much easier said than done. I'm sure a lot of people listening in can look around at their closest friends, the people in their communities and environment and not see a ton of people who are sort of succeeding at the same goals that they want to succeed at. How have you been so effective at finding people? Well, sometimes they find me, to be fair. Like Anurag reached out to me. Someone introduced me to Kadrin, who's the founder of um, Alpha. And it's an all-women's tech online community. And how does that happen? Who's making these intros to you and why? People who, I don't, yeah. Adora, I think, introduced me to Kadrin way back when, when both of us were starting out building our products. Anurag just told me yesterday that someone like told him about key values and that's how he reached out to me. But I think it's just the power of reaching out. Like people, if you want to reach out to someone, just reach out to them, send them a nice email. I mean, there's definitely an art to, to reaching out, doing the cold outreach, but like just even on Twitter, just engage with someone. If they can if they make a tweet, just comment, reply. If you reply once a week at some point, I bet you do, you notice this, like someone keeps replying to your engaging with your tweets. You're like, you just start to notice them. And then when they reach out, it doesn't feel like they're a stranger. And it's just like, it's natural. Um, there's lots of people that are really smart that I meet that we don't end up being friends with. But I think for me, it's also like I get excited when I meet people who are they have they're like struggling with something that I can help with. And then I've just always been a thing like I've always been a fan of bartering. I feel like anytime someone gives me something, I want to give something back. And I, I think I, I apply this. It's not just and I don't think it's transactional. I don't know. People hate on me about this. But like I, it's like same, same thing with friendships. If like someone is a good friend to you. I want to be a good friend back. You know, like I want to, I want to show up and be there for you when you need me the most. Like I want to step up, you know, I don't know. It's just like, I think I want to return the favor. And so it's just a natural thing of like finding your people. I think a big part of it is also just building cool stuff and putting it out there because you built key values. No one else built key values. Of course, people are going to want to get to know who you are and you're going to meet interesting people because they think you're interesting too. And so you just sort of glom onto each other and build up this cool network of people you could have easily just never built key values or never released it, in which case it would have been much yeah. harder to meet interesting people. I think the second half of that equation is it's not just about building anything, but you want to build something that works ideally. We talked about this earlier, but you started at the problem and then you worked backwards toward the solution. And I think if you had done what you had done in the other direction, what you would have ended up with right. is probably just a job board. You would have said, I'm going to build a job board and you would have released that and it would have looked no different than any of the other 10,000 job boards on the internet and it would be much harder for you to find people, et cetera. So... I think you sort of did it the right way for meeting interesting people. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird to hear your like high level analysis because I just don't, I kind of, I didn't make these, it didn't feel like decision points for me. It was just like, this is my personality. This is what I've got. This is what I'm going to do. It didn't like it. It's just funny to hear this bird's eye view. But yeah, I think that, I mean, to be fair, Key Values isn't a job board. I mean, it kind of is. I remember when we first were like, you were helping coaching me through getting into YC. That's that was like my one liner. Like YC, or uh, my in my application to YC, I looked it up the other day. Was like key values is a culture driven job board. That was like for engineers or something like that. And I think of key values now less and less like a job board. It's just, yeah, I think it's its own thing. Yeah, but I think it's interesting in general. Like people want to you want to describe something that makes sense to people. It's easy for them to understand. And I didn't realize how 
much me describing key values as a job board made me made like colored my vision of what key values was. And then I started like, it was just, I can't explain it. But like, once I realized it was this amorphous hybrid thing that doesn't like straddles recruiting and employer branding and kind of like a job board, I realized like it helped me really just sell it better because I understood it. It didn't have to like be confined to a quote unquote job board. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about key values today. You're at a point now where you're doing over 80K in revenue per quarter. What's changed? What are you thinking about in terms of growing in the future? (laughs) I feel like you're like, this is a little trick question here. I mean, I'm like literally in this process of deciding and like figuring it out because, you know, once you reach your goal, you're like, okay, now what? Well, yeah, we can even step back because we didn't even mention that like your goal, I think a year ago, you were like, or maybe even a year and a half ago, you were like, I want to make $300,000 a year. I mean, I'm not quite business. there yet. Like I want to pay myself 300K. You're definitely you know? there. But there's a, lot, there's a lot of questions. I mean, I'm still figuring out. It's like a religious question of like, what do I want this to be? I think there's a lot of like, should I scale this? Should I hire people? Should, like, what should I do? So I actually, you know, um, Danny's doing a transition. He's doing a lot of other stuff. He's doing consulting. And I was like, oh, do you want to spend a few hours a week helping me do sales calls? And we just started this in January of this year. And so I hadn't been doing sales calls, but he was out of town this last week. And I like forgot how much I love doing sales. Like it was just, just like having not done it for a few weeks and then jumping back into it. And I had this like epiphany earlier this week that like, I think I, I don't care about scaling. And it's kind of like part, I think I knew this deep down inside. It's why I didn't want to fundraise is because I genuinely enjoy doing this stuff. I know it sounds like crazy. It's like, who likes doing, I, I get so much energy doing sales. I love talking to people. I love someone being like, oh my God, I think you're going to really help me. Like, I can't wait to work together. I'm like, me neither. Like, let's be friends. Like in a way, I feel like key values is just, I found a way to help people and network and make friends and also get compensated for it. I like literally that's, you like it's generally love what you're doing. It's pretty obvious that you do. And, and then <laughs> there's weeks where you're like kind of tired of stuff and you just like quit that stuff. I just, yeah, I just like don't spend time doing stuff. Like there's so many features I could build for key values and I want to, but I mean, first of all, they're not that high priority. They're not make or break, but like that's less fun to me than the the social aspect. And like, I love meeting these companies and helping them write their profiles. I love like connecting and like talking to the people and getting people to visit key values. And like, I like answering questions and people have them on Hacker News or Indie Hackers or whatever, Dev.2, Hacker Noon, whatever on Twitter. And um, yeah, the social part finally gets to live. And I definitely, yeah, I do like coding and I actually miss coding, but it's definitely not, you know, I just, you just do what you're excited about. Yeah. I think it goes back to why you had such a hard time in YC because there's kind of this school of advice that falls under a circle. Let's call it what you should do. You right. know, should in quotes. This is what you should do if you want to grow as fast as possible or be as effective as possible. And then there's like, what do you want to do? Like what makes you enjoy running your business? And you consistently choose the latter path. You're consistently like, I'm going to do the business that I like doing. I don't care what I should do. And sometimes you feel tortured because it's like you want to get an A+. Plus, you know? I know, I if know. If I'm giving you advice, you like want to you want to follow it. If YC founder is giving you advice, you want to follow it. I know. Uh, but more so... I think you just stay true to yourself and you just do what you want to do. Yeah. No, I actually had this another revelation earlier this week. This week was a big week in that I think that after dropping out of grad school, like I realized, so when I dropped out of grad school, I felt fucking scared. I had spent six, seven, eight years building towards this dream. Like this, I was very outcome focused. I was like, I, this is my destination. I want to be a professor. And then leaving that, it's like, fuck, I'm starting from scratch. I'm 24, 25. Like I literally can't 
lean on any of my previous experience. I'm like, it's just scary to start over and you're like, feel so behind. I feel so behind behind everyone else. But I think that kind of like in a way freed me. And now I know it's like, there's no time to waste doing shit you're not excited about. Like there's just like, so I, there's this article, I shared it with you earlier. It's just like being focused on the process rather than the outcome. Not only is it like less fun focusing on the outcome, but yeah, it's something that I learned a long time ago. However, I'm just still, it's like a fragile focus. And if I'm around other people, since I'm so extroverted and just like absorb everyone's energy, I have to like be really careful about who I'm spending time with. Cause I do, I do get caught up. Like if everyone, if there's, if five people walked in here and they were like so excited about opening up a bakery, I would no doubt start getting excited and be like, oh my God, should I help? Should I, should, like Cortland, should we like open a bakery too? Should we help them open this bakery? Like, I'm not even kidding. And it's kind of crazy. I'm just like super excitable. But because of that, like YC was just way, it was like. <laughs> yeah, I think the phrase when you were going through YC that I uttered the most was Len, focus. focus. I was like, I'm in. I don't know how. Help me. Someone help me. Yeah. Focus. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, I know I'm really extroverted and social, but that's also why I prefer to physically work alone a lot of the time because it helps me focus. What about on a personal note? I mean, getting to the point where you're making $300,000 a year and like hitting this milestone that like at some point you consider it almost impossible, like a distant, distant future. What does that feel like? It's funny. I think so. uh, I don't think we talked about this at all. But as you know, when I started Key Values, I, I literally had like a little mini life crisis when that happened. And I was like, okay, what are my goals? And looking for a new job, blah, blah, blah. But I started Key Values at the same time as me, as I decided to do an Ironman. Cause yeah, long story short, I was like, what are my dreams? What I want to do? Like, you know, if I died in 10 years, like what I want to, what I want to accomplish. And so the, an Ironman for the, I don't even know if you know, it's 2.4 miles swim, 112 miles biking. And then you run a full marathon, which is 26.2 miles. And I remember when I started thinking about it, I was like, I'm not sure I physically can do this. And it wasn't a confidence issue. It's just like, realistically, I've had injuries. Like my, I have this knee problem. I don't know if I can physically do it. But when I did, it was like cool to look back just a few months ago at something I genuinely thought was impossible and feel like that was nothing. Let's do it again. And I think I've just kind of borrowed like I apply that to key values. And so there's like, there's nothing that's impossible. If I, honestly, it is not impossible for me to make a million dollars a year or even 10. Like maybe I'd raise money, maybe I won't. It's definitely possible. It's just a question of, do I want to do that? Well, we have been going for an hour and a half now. I'm sure people Shit, have sorry, got stuff to do. Sorry. It's been super fun to actually have I you know, on the podcast so and fun. walk through all the things that make you like a special person and you make your business such a, a cool success. I probably reference key values uh, and giving advice to other people more than any other company. I tell people to charge so more cool. and then I point, I tell them exactly what your finances are yeah. and I try to get them to do a much better job. So I think uh, your story is an inspiration. What do you think people listening in who are maybe considering starting a company or you know taking their first steps, what do you think they should draw from your story in order to be more successful? Two things. First, don't build a to-do list app. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I was like, I'm kidding, but I'm actually probably not kidding. But the, the main thing I was just saying is like, be good at asking for advice. I learned this the hard way. I think, I mean, perfect example is during YC, I would ask for advice without first 
like prefacing it with what my goals are and what like my circumstances are. So instead of asking, you know, like, how do I start a business or like, what's a good idea? Like frame it with some other things. Like, how do I start a side business as a full-time employee? Like, how do I like, you know, like be more specific. Like if you're a parent, if you have kids, like maybe you should mention that if you don't know how to code, like how does, how do I start a profitable side business as someone who doesn't know how to code and only has time on the weekends? Like that's a much more specific question and you'll get answers that are much more relevant to you than just asking like, how do I start a company? So I think being good at asking for advice and then the hard part, which I'm still working on too, is being good at filtering that advice. And ultimately there's a lot of things that like, there, there are no wrong, I mean, I guess there is bad advice, but sometimes there's like multiple pieces of advice that are different and they're all good. And it's instead of like thrashing and figuring out like which one's the better one, it's really just like a question of what you want and you should filter it through a rubric of like what you enjoy doing, what's gonna, how do you flex your own advantages, I think is kind of my advice. Well, it's so meta. It's so meta. Well, Lynn, I, I appreciate you coming <laughs> on the podcast. I you. It's so cool. I think your story is gonna inspire a lot of people to start companies. I hope it does. Yeah, and I was just gonna say, like I'm literally a example. Like I started on Indie Hackers and now I'm fucking on the podcast. Yeah, you did it. Almost an hour and 45 minutes of podcast. Let's go get food or something. I'm exhausted. All right. Toodle doodle. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.